Okay, how you doing? This is Kyle Means, editorial director, of We Are Regal Radio. Dot com war media and we are here just continuing to document the bulls and nba history and everything all type of great stuff that uh you know is helping us get through these trying times here in chicago and uh with the uh the premiere of the last dance documentary the much awaited documentary uh multi-part that uh, uh, uh talking about the bulls and the 90s and michael jordan and everything that led up to that final championship year 97 98 i felt it was uh you know it'd be great to get on a, a great historian and writer of the nba someone who has viewed the nba through multi multiple generations and who was there on the front lines documenting the Bulls at that time and has continued to document the league and Michael Jordan through uh, some great books that he's written and everything. But uh, on the line with me is Mr. Roland Lazenby, a best-selling author and educator. And he has written many books, including Blood on the Horns, uh, which was published in 1998, the subtitle being The Long Strange Ride of Michael Jordan's Chicago's, Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls. And he's also written uh, autobi- uh, a biography, I should say, on Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, The Life. Uh, Roland, how you doing? Kyle, I am well. And of course, I want to uh, wish the very best to the people of a beautiful city in the middle of a difficult time and um, my heart is with with all folks in Chicago and uh, have uh, much concern well thank you uh, Roland I appreciate that sentiment and how are you doing yourself how, how, how you've been maintaining through uh, all this quarantines uh, and everything. You know, I'm 67. I, I, I still get out a bit, but uh, I hadn't been out in this much. <laughs> hmm. I've been sheltered in place. So, uh, but I have a lot of work to do. I'm writing a book on uh, Magic Johnson. Oh, wow. And and uh, so I've got uh, all the work I can handle. This is another one of these very big lives. Okay, and and I, I should and, say I should say you've written, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of your other writing uh, in as we go along. But you've written you've written as much about the Lakers as you've written about anything, and uh, you know Jerry West and Kobe Bryant have been uh, targets of yours as well. And to to hear that you write about Magic, that's pretty exciting. Uh, thank you. You know, I was, uh, I've written, I don't know, seven or eight books on the Bulls, maybe more. Uh, and so I've been very fortunate. I, uh, I started out the NBA, uh, writing a series of books on the Celtics in the Bird era. And the publisher hired me to, to start working with the Bad Boy Pistons. And uh, as they were coming up, and uh, then I got hired to write about the Bulls. I was—I'd already written some about the Lakers. I was, uh, had written a good bit about the Lakers. I got hired by the Lakers, about the Lakers next, and then I got hired to write back in '93. Uh, uh, I got hired to write. The Chicago Tribune hired me to write. Uh, Bulls championship story for them and I got a bunch of different Bulls projects I got to do so I was a lucky dude to be able to have that work certainly I, but let's let's start off you know it, with this documentary the, the main focus right now for a lot of people is on that final year right right of course and uh, you know that, that was an interesting year to say the least it was the end of an era we, we didn't we knew at the time. I mean, I was I was aware of everything going on. I was I was only about fourteen, but 
I was aware of everything. I grew up watching the team and everything. But, you know, we knew, we knew that there was a chance that it would be the last year. Nobody wanted to really accept it. But, you know, it, it wound up being the case. And, you know, they, they went out on top, but it led to a fissure that, you know, really sunk the Bulls franchise since then. But, it, you know, for you, being that, you know, you covered the team for several years throughout the the emergence of the of that dynasty and you know it was coming to a breaking point from through your eyes and your coverage at the time you know what was it like to be on be uh, around the team at that time and what were the sort of the main things that you were taking and observing from them at that point well, I actually ended up in the middle of it. The war was actually between Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson. That's where it started out. And, and, uh, and some about Scotty Pippen, uh, between Jerry Krause and Scotty Pippen. And um, I, I, I was hired to write the Bulls history in 1994 by the Chicago Tribune, and I started on that. Uh, and I will say that at that time, Bulls had won three straight titles. Michael had left. And Jackson was owed money, and Scottie Pippen was owed money. And Jerry Reinsdorf had bought the Bulls maybe 10, 11 million, if I remember correctly, with his group of investors. And it zoomed with those three championships up over 500 million. He made a lot of money. But Jordan had left, and he wasn't looking to to put money on Phil or or Scotty. And uh, I had an interview with Phil Jackson to talk about the history. I was supposed to get about 10 minutes with And we started in, and he talked to me for two hours. I used, back then it was cassette tapes. I used every cassette tape in my bag, and he just ripped into Jerry Krause. I, I mean, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Nobody knew how they felt at that time. He was looking and for somebody so, to unload I'm on sorry? He was He was just looking for someone to unload on Krause about him. Oh, yeah, and he knew this was a team history. He And I'd been interviewing Krause. I'd had, you know, a lot of interviews with Krause. So I had to, t- I, I, I typed the thing up and gave it to Phil. I said, are you sure you want to say all this? And, I had said that Krause was like 5'8", 240. And the only thing he changed, he took a pen and marked out 240 and put in 260. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I submitted it to Krause, and he took off like a rocket, man. He called Phil in the office and blessed him out. And the war was on from that first shot. And Phil would always call me in and tell me these outrageous things. And they were going back and forth. Who got invited to whose party? Who didn't? This stuff was bub- bubbling underneath everything. And Michael disliked Jerry Krause anyway. And Scotty disliked him. Well, and Phil well, was at war with him over money. And Scotty was at war over money. And Krause was mad that Phil had an agent. Of course, today, every coach has had agents for years, but Krause was a kingmaker. Nobody wanted to hire Phil Jackson. Phil had written a book talking about taking LSD on the beach in L.A. after his Knicks team won the 73 championship. And he was viewed as sort of an oddball hippie. But Krause, you know, wanted to hire him. He had scouted him. Krause was an old scout. He had scouted him at the University of North Dakota as a college player and wanted to draft him for the Baltimore Bullets, who he's working for, but the Knicks got him. But anyway, Krause snapped up the chance to make him a coach and elevated him, fired Doug Collins, elevated him because he because Tex Winter was there and wanted to run the triangle and Doug Collins would run it and still ran it and they took off, you know. It also was uh Number one, because uh, obviously Jordan had matured. Uh, he was ready to win. Pippen had matured battling Jordan in practice. But everybody now wanted credit for it, and a lot of them wanted to be paid. 
And uh, man, the war was on, and uh, it got crazier and crazier. And Michael would get on the back of the bus, like during the '97 playoffs. They'd get a couple of beers in them after they win a game, and they would start digging in on Kraus. And Kraus wasn't supposed to be around the team. Jackson had warned him not to do it. <laughs> and Jordan would be at the back going, and and Kraus would be up front. And he'd be going, Jerry Krause! Jerry Krause! Let's go fishing! Don't worry, if we don't catch anything, you can just eat the bait yourself. And and everybody in the bus, all the players would bust out laughing. But now Jordan, and I talked to him about this at the time on, he was saying hard, dude. He was hard on everybody. Uh, and, and, and nobody would laugh too loud because Jordan might see them and start getting on them. And he used this, uh, James Worthy told me, James Worthy was a junior in Carolina when Michael came in as a freshman. Yes. James Worthy told me, he said, Michael was a bully and he bullied me. And Michael was a bully, man. I mean, you couldn't get away with that today. And you really couldn't get away with it back then, except you were winning championships and Nobody was going to uh, change that. And I, I, I interpreted it this way, and I asked Jordan about it, because it, it was his weird way of leadership. He said, I can be hard. But he said, I'm hard on everybody. I got to know when we step on that floor, are they, are they going to be tough? Are they going to have that mind that won't break? And everybody, you know, certain people, this is true of certain superstars, they are so demanding, so charismatic too, that everybody wants to please them. And that's the way it was in Chicago. Jerry Krause, Phil Jackson. Tex Winter came to a team, he was a heck of a college coach he coached Jordan longer than anyone Krause loved Tex Winter brought him to the team when Krause got hired Jordan's second year and Tex said man I coached everybody and he Tex and would get in anybody's grill he was old school and Tex said man I had to watch him I had to watch him for a while I wasn't sure about what to say to him and Jordan was it's hard to describe how fierce he was, but he drove that whole franchise. Nobody wanted to let him down, but he could light you up, and he, he was lighting Jerry Krause up. So the anger was building like gas in a coal mine on that thing, you know? Mm. And it got to, uh, because Jordan had humiliated Krause during the 97 playoffs. And it got to media day for the 97-98 season. And everybody was doing their interviews and Krause did his and went up to his office and looked back down on all the media. And he came back down there, man. He had, you know, he was itching. He had a, a trigger finger. He wanted to fire the shot. And so everybody got back around and he said, because uh, people heard rumors that this was, he was going to make his fills last year. People ask him, he said, I don't care if we go 82-0. Bill Jackson's not coming back. Wow. And it was on. It was on. Michael and Scotty fell in with Phil's side. And, I mean, Chicago was a fire. You probably remember some of it. Uh, Kyle was a 14-year-old. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, it didn't... I mean, yeah, everybody... Of course, we we all sided with the, the players and with Phil. It's, I, it, yeah, it is. It's, it's interesting because uh, uh, ESPN showed like the first five minutes of the documentary today, and it's come. It basically comes along on the whole side of what you just uh, elaborated on with uh, you know everything forming around Kraus and his opposition to to the players and stuff and. It is, and Pete, they even go into it right away about some of the, uh, the, 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 the eccentricities or the, the person, the self persecutions that, uh, that Krauss had, like as a, as a, you know, 
he he was the opposite of Jordan. He was unathletic, short guy, fat, poor. I've been bullied all his life. Yeah, so it's like yes, I'm sure you've heard all of that. It's like, but he brought them all together. This is amazing. He brought Phil Jackson. He brought Tex Winter. Yeah, he didn't bring Michael Jordan. He well, brought in Scotty. Well, Scotty. You go down the list, Kraus is out there looking for him. And at times, I would talk to him, I think this guy's crazy. <laughs> at other times, you didn't know. Uh, but he just had this need to be recognized. And he wanted, and he would go in. Jordan didn't take, uh, he didn't take things well from Kraus. And Kraus would want to go in and say, I, I, I remember this guy from back in the day, Oscar. He's better than you, you are. And, you know, you tell Jordan stuff like that. <laughs> That's like lighting a whole truck of bottle rockets. And they would have these titanic battles, and Krauss did not get it. And when that season started, you just can't believe it. I was doing interviews with Phil Jackson on the record, and he, he was saying things like, you know, the last thing Jordan likes to do before he plays a game is go back in their restroom in the locker room and sit on the job. And he said, invariably, Jerry Krause will want to go back there and sit on the job when Jordan is. And Bill told me, he said, I've tried to tell the guy, please don't go back there and sit on the job when Jordan's on the job. And Bill would say something like, it's his need for intimacy or something. <laughs> and I mean, I, my whole book, Blood on the Horns, is about this. And of course, as the season went on, Phil was, you know, Scotty and Krause were into this whole thing just boiled and boiled and boiled. And at the end of the season, I showed, uh, Klaus and Ryan Fuller for all that I had written. I showed it to Phil and Christ, uh, I mean, uh, Kraus and uh, Ryan, uh, particularly, Ryan Storff was upset too. But they came out with all this stuff for me about this, some really sneaky low stuff Phil had done. And so they went back and forth at each other like you would not believe. But the pressure, the other thing I'll say I'll shot. But the pressure on Jordan, because Pippen, you know, was out injured. And um, Jordan had to drive that team along. He had Scott Burrell in as a new player. New players had trouble learning the triangle. Jordan had all this pressure on him because they were going to stick this in Krause's face one last time. And Krause was so angry from how he had been treated on the bus in the 97 playoffs. Uh, you know, the, that bus out there in the Utah mountains would, would struggle going up the hill and Jordan would be doing things like yelling, they need to stop let Jerry Krause off so they could get up the hill. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was just going on and on. It was nobody, no general manager on any team anywhere had ever been in that circumstance. And Phil kept saying, Jerry, don't come around. You shouldn't be on the bus with the team because that was a team space. Management has to do its thing differently, you know? But Krause was just not going to do it. And so they were so angry and Krause said, it's not that I want to get rid of Jordan. We don't want Phil. But he says, I will tell you this, I long for the day when Jordan's gone and we get to build a championship without him and show people. And that was, I, I think the Greek word they were using back then is hubris. I, I'm still not sure what it means except you're thinking like an idiot, I guess, is the way I would translate it. Yeah, I, I think it means... that's what it is. Of hubris. I think it means and, you go 20 years without a championship. That's what I think it means. Oh, it, it, you know, you end up getting fired even by a guy that he was so loyal to. Yeah. Ryan Storff. It, it was, uh, it's been painful 
to see the breakup of that great team. It's been painful to see. There was so much joy. It, it lit up the city of Chicago economically. That was the proudest city on the planet, and it needed it. It was important. And to see that breakup like that is still a very hurtful thing. I can't imagine what it would be like. Uh, you know, I, I did all the Bulls history. I did all back, interviewed all the old timers, the stuff they've been through. Chicago had, had quite a turn with pro basketball. The only good thing that had happened was the, the Globetrotters. They were incredible Chicago institutions. And the Bulls finally got good there, you know, in the 70s with Jerry Sloan and the great Norm Van Leer and yeah. Bob Love and those guys. But it was, they could never get over the hump. And it was uh, when, when Jordan came along and they finally got it up and going. They had two different versions of that team, but Scotty and Michael were the center of each version. And they could add role players around them. Krauss knew how to pick and find role players and stars, too. He, he really was a student. It's a tragedy for him that he was so needy and uh, he did not really read. Jordan's personality better mm. and uh, you know it just it, it's sad yeah I think on the on the intellectual level I think and, and with time going by and with us seeing the way that you know you know unfortunately the way that John Paxson and Gar Foreman wasn't able to build a championship team here we've been able to appreciate a lot of the work that uh, Krauss did more, you know, and like I say, look in the rear view, like, like you said, uh, you know, the, the, the trades that he, some of the trades that he made to be able to bring, to have a draft night where we get Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant in one evening. Like that's the greatest, you know, aside from picking Jordan, that's the greatest single draft night the franchise has had. This, you know, bringing in, you know, bringing in crew coaching. Yeah, bringing in crew coaching, taking the risk there of alien. He took a risk there and alienating Pippen and Jordan, but it wound up working and he wound up being a great part of, of the, the final three titles and bringing in Rodman and stuff. It's, like, he did a lot of great things, but like, like you said. That, and, uh, but again, if, if they had been, they had made all that money on the book. Yeah. If they had been willing to pay Pippen, and they'd been, uh, I, I, you know, if they had not been so stubborn about paying Phil, and if they had not acted that way, then Pippen and, and would, would, they would never have looked at Kukoc as sort of Krause's puppy. That's the last thing Kukoc wanted to be known at. Mm-hmm. You talk about a guy caught a lot of grief, and Kukoc had a lot of game. Oh yeah. But, uh, it it was it was Jerry couldn't listen for some reason. He couldn't see. He was so bullish, uh, so stubborn. He couldn't see. Uh, and Tex Winter, here was my judge on it. I got really close with Tex through the whole thing, and Tex owed everything to Jerry Krause. And Tex owed everything to Phil Jackson because Phil had was the coach that took his tri- Texas beloved triangle offense and had the ability to sell it to the players and to and had the patience to get that thing up and running and you know was taking a risk at doing it. A lot of coaches have failed trying to run the triangle. Sure. And so Tex was loyal to both men. And I would sit and ask Tex, Tex, what in the world? How how you sort this out? He said, well, all I can say is Bill spent years bending over backwards trying to placate Jerry Krause, ignoring all of his stuff. And he just finally got fed up with it. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. It, 
it, it, and you know, it's they they did a lot like and for and for the for the for the team line to, to end up coming down to organizations win championships when you had these three you know transformative talents at your disposal and you know that they had more to do with with the the winning than anything you know it, it was just disrespectful and like it's on top of the the money stuff i mean that's just that's just common sense they had paid them because they had paid them and done uh, and shown just just fundamental respect in some ways at that right. level now there are a lot of things changing in the nba back then but it wasn't hard to show those guys fundamental respect they those guys work you go in those practices i've coached a lot of basketball just youth ball a little bit of high school and AAU. But Scotty and uh, Michael would go in there. Tex Winter had all these fundamental drills. They would go in there <coughs> throw chest passes for 15 minutes. Just work. I mean, all the foot fundamentals and stuff. You can't get 12-year-olds to throw chest passes. And I am going to tell you, those guys worked. And, and whenever Phil and Tex would coach the All-Star game, all the other guys would come in like, you gotta be kidding me. You, they would ask Scotty Michael, yeah, I don't do this in practice. <laughs> and they did. It was fundamental basketball. And those guys were, uh, I, I'm not talking about some spoiled pro athletes who, you know, been paid big money and, uh, you know, it's beneath them. There was no part of the game beneath those guys. They deserved everything you could possibly pay them. This is a textbook for I don't care if you, what corporation you run, what operation you're heading up. This is a textbook in not disrespecting your most talented, hardest working people. That's yeah. and 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 the franchises has had to deal with the after effects of that, you know, for for twenty years. And it seemed, you know, you may know better than me, but I, I think some of the things, some of the reporting that I've heard is that players around the league, you know, players who looked up to the Bulls, to Jordan, the Pippen, they looked at the the way that they were treated back then, and when when it came time for them to be free agents, so. Uh, and, and you know maybe uh, you know figure in Chicago in their plans they they may have dismissed that idea because of you know what they felt to be a disrespectful uh, a disrespectful organization towards stars and stuff. Uh, would, would it's you- a complicated psychology, and that's certainly a big part of it. I'll tell you something else though, man. Who wants to follow an act like Jordan? <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do to to outshine him? How are you going to uh, walk in and, and uh, be the next Michael Jordan? Now, there was one guy. And, and 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 yeah, okay, that's a great transition, Roland. Let go go right to that because I think I, I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to say. Uh, and I spent a lot of time. Yes, sir. And the, uh, you know, Jordan was mean. He, he was very charismatic. It's easy to like Michael. But he was a mean dude. He was a bully. That that bullying stuff he did, whatever the reason, wasn't right. It is what it is. Kobe was uh, cold. He was ruthless, just like Michael. <laughs> and people all over the globe loved him for it. They, I mean, my, my, my Jordan biographies and 
15 languages. Maccoby biography showboat is in nine. It's three more translations into other languages. And they don't translate. These are big old fat books, 700 pages. The last thing these publishers want to do is translate 700 pages from America, <laughs> but they do it. Because people all over the globe admire those two men. And the reason they do is because they never cheated their game in any way. They they had a competitive integrity. They gave it all. You just can't. Roland, what Roland, what was what was your thought? Cause as we go into the Kobe stuff now, cause uh, you know, to let you, to let the audience in a little bit. That's uh, when we first we first started talking earlier this year around the time of Kobe's death, and that's what I originally wanted to talk to you about was Kobe. But uh, you know, I, I think maybe the one you know in, in this incredible year that we've had in in life in general, but in in basketball too, maybe the most indelible moment so far this year I, I would think is Michael Jordan speaking on about Kobe at his memorial and you knocked that out of the park what were your thoughts you, on, you, on you knocked that it didn't just go out of the park it rolled down in the creek it is uh, <clears throat> that's ex- exactly the home run observation and it was the most powerful moment and we've had a, a year from hell there's all kinds of powerful moments but the most powerful moment for me was uh, MJ <clears throat> and I, you know I, I I was lucky like I got in the middle of the other thing I introduced Kobe to two of the most important people in his life um, one of them is George Mumford my, my dear friend he's the psychologist, the Zen guy for the Bulls. <laughs> when Kobe was a young player struggling, I got, and George is African-American, we're with Dr. J. Newman. He, he's as, as good a friend, as good a mentor to me as anybody in this world. I've had some great mentors. And I got George to come to Houston for, I was uh, doing a Lakers thing down there. And I introduced him to Kobe at courtside, and Kobe said, let me get this right. Phil Jackson, as hard as it is to find practice time here in the NBA with this schedule, Phil Jackson cuts out the lights and have you, has you all sit on the floor and meditate during practice. <laughs> and George laughed and said, yes. And uh, Kobe after his career was over, he called up George one day. And George George Mumford was the one thing Shaq and Kobe could agree on. They called him their secret weapon. And he, he asked George to fly out to Southern California. Kobe showed him all his businesses and things he was doing, working with people. He flew George all over Southern California in his helicopter and he told him, I've never forgotten a word you've ever told me. And that was that was Michael's reaction to George Mumford. Uh, George came in in 94 at the same time I did. 93-94. And uh, Michael said, you know, if I'd met you earlier, I wouldn't spend all these years hiding in my hotel room. Because, you know, this is still has Phil Jackson done some low things, but he liberated the game of basketball. He helped liberate the athletes to a degree by giving them uh, someone like George Mumford who could show them how to deal with the stress of competition. If you are going to compete at a high level, then you have to deal with immense pressure. You have to be willing to put that on yourself and to find ways to to, you know, sort of push some of it off on certain teammates who can take it. And so uh, Kobe was such a pure pilgrim from the, I mean, I met that dude, 
the night he scored his first NBA field goal and got to know him over there. He spent a lot of time with him. And the other person I introduced him to was Tex Winter. Kobe was so lost early in the league. He had so much integrity and wanted to work so hard. And, it, you know, it, it just, it was irregular how hard he wanted to work. I always, I was doing a speech in school a few years ago. Forgive me for running on like this. But I was talking to a group of students trying to explain Kobe Bryant to them. And there was a young lady on the front row. And I asked her, uh, she was 17. I asked her what her, did she work? She said, yeah, I work at the grocery store. I said, well, all this week when you go work after school, you go in and tell them that you are going to be the greatest grocery worker ever who ever lived. You're going to tell all these older people you work with. And you're going to tell them that you are going to be running that grocery store in two years and that in six years you are going to own the whole grocery chain and you are going to run the thing. And that what you need them to do immediately is to stay after work after a long day, but they can practice all the things they have to do. Stocking shelves, they got to really work on how they are in the checkout line. But that young lady has said, now, can you do that? Can you tell all your older workers that? She looked at me like I was out of my mind. But that was Kobe Bryant. He came in at 18, and he put so much pressure on those veteran Lakers. And, and it's the same thing Michael did. Michael came in, and, uh, you know, the Bulls had, had a lot of problems that came in. They had, uh, they had a lot of cocaine abuse in their roster. Uh, they had people who could play, but... It was just coming out of a, a difficult time. And Jordan just would humiliate them if they weren't ready, you know, to step up. And Kobe could humiliate those guys in Lakers practice. Hmm. And he was fearless at the idea of Michael Jordan. Now, Michael was his guide star. Kobe had idolized Magic as a boy. But Michael was his guide star. Right. And, and, you know, and I've written about this, you know, there was there was the rumors and everything, and, and Kobe actually confirmed these in his talk with Shaq a few years uh, after the fact, and a couple years ago at this point. But, you know, he came really close to coming to Chicago. And that's what we know, as we know that in your transition, you know, we, we sort of mentioned that, like, if there was one guy who would have been willing post Michael Jordan's era here in Chicago to take on that legacy, try to maybe build, even build on it or at least approach it, it probably would have been Kobe. So, Fearless. I mean, Fearless. you think that he could have had. The, a similar or comparable impact had he come to Chicago in say 07 like if they make that trade and you know they somehow you know keep dang keep Luol dang here to pair him alongside Kobe you know does he do the, some of the similar things here in Chicago that he did in LA yes and no uh, Tex Winter, I often would sit with Tex because he coached both guys. He was, Phil was hard on, really hard, and didn't trust Kobe, and obviously favored Shaq over Kobe. Coaches would do that. That's logical. You, you got a big man like Shaq, and Kobe's a teenager. And they never hit it off, and so Tex was Kobe's protector against Phil. Everybody else in the Lakers organization was sort of coward by Phil, but Tex was fierce with him. Tex was fierce with everybody in his own way. But I would often ask Tex Winter, what's the difference between Kobe and Michael? And Tex, first thing would say, well, Michael spent those three years in North Carolina in an incredibly tight system. You couldn't really see. And the pro scouts would complain. They couldn't tell how good Michael Jordan was because Dean Smith's system covered it up. It covered up individual brilliance. And Dean Smith's <clears throat> number one assistant coach uh, was Bill Gu 
Guthridge, who had been Tex Winter's point guard at Kansas State and then had been his assistant coach for like eight seasons. And Bill Guthridge, they didn't run the triangle, but they ran system basketball. Uh, it wasn't about individual brilliance. In fact, they lost Jordan's junior year because they they really didn't have a way of giving him the ball and just letting him attack in the end. And so Tex always said if Kobe had had some college ball in a system somewhere, but he went right from Lower Marion High School and the league, there were no there just wasn't much in the way of kids in the league back then. It was all, uh, you know, uh, hard faces. It was all older guys that, you know, they just really weren't of the frame of mind to put up with anything uh, of somebody coming in and telling me he was going to head up the grocery store. You know what I'm saying? And so Kobe was really miserable. And his resentment, you know, he threw his parents out of his life eventually. His resentment grew. There were a number of things. Obviously, they did not want him uh, marrying uh, Vanessa. But it was also his resentment because they sort of really ushered him right away into, before he signed his contract with Adidas, Sonny Vaccaro was signing him to pay him millions to turn pro. He, uh, Kobe looked at Sonny Vaccaro and said, Mr. Vaccaro, is there any way I can sign this contract and my parents can have this money and I can still go play college ball? And Sonny laughed and said, nope, Kobe, this, this makes you a pro. You're, you're going to be an NBA player. And, you know, Kobe had a lot of hootspah. He was, you know, he walked around letting people know he was ready for it. He was not. It just was too big a gulf back then. And college would have helped him some. But I think Kobe uh, always knew that. And I think that was part of his resentment that he would have had. uh, And maybe he wouldn't have. Maybe this is all idle, worthless speculation. But I do think that that little bit of background would have really helped him coming to a team like Chicago. I I know that's a long answer to your question, but I think if he had had more of a basis in the team game, the other thing that I think is critical uh, with a guy like Kobe, and he could probably have played for anybody, but he's got to have the right kind of coaching to really uh, get what he needs. He's going to go. He was going to go at it no matter what, and he played for some different people. But uh, he he was a master at the triangle, and of course, I, I do have to tell you this. I sat down with Michael at the pre-draft camp in Orlando in 2008 when Kobe was going through his MVP season. We were sitting way up in the rafters down in Orlando at uh, uh, the Disney sports complex there. You know, the players, you know, the college players were running drills and stuff. And Michael and I were talking about Kobe. And it was obvious to me what a tremendous uh, goodwill what uh, what tremendous appreciation MJ had for Kobe and you know he said uh, there, there's not many if any who want to do the work to be great and Kobe has wanted to do the work and of course they both played in the same offense the offense was great it was a two guard front not a one guard front you know you'd have those two guards one up would make that pass and cut through to the corner usually a guy like Kerr or Paxton or BJ Armstrong who could make that corner three and so that created an unbalanced floor because the defense had to go over and cover in the corner and you put Michael or Kobe on the weak side where it was impossible to double team them where they could slaughter you by going to the basket or with the mid-range game or whatever they wanted. And it was just an opportunity to feast. 
And those two guys shared that special spot in basketball, and they understood each other like no other. And they had an affinity. I remember going out to the Lakers. They were in the playoffs. I walked in the Lakers locker room, and Kobe was over there lacing up his shoes. And I said, Kobe, I've been talking to Michael about you. And his ears perked up like a 12-year-old kid. Hmm. Really? What did he have to say? And he was just, you know, that. and Kobe was really at any time, as, as we know, to tell him, I can beat you, I, you know, but they, they just had a kinship that nobody else could have. I, I was going down to Michael's golf tournament, like in 99, might have been the summer of 98 after this uh, last dance. And I asked Kobe, I, uh, I said, what do you, uh, what do you want me to ask Michael for you? He laughed, he said, I want you to get him to tell me about mathematics. <laughs> Which was his way of saying, I'm still working on this whole thing of the pace of scoring in a game, you know. Mm. How do I get my 12 and, and uh, 15? And, you know, how do I have these big games quarter by quarter? What's the pacing? There, and they would have those conversations. They didn't need a fool like me as a good between. But, you know, it was just sort of a playful thing from him. It would seem like by the time he was scoring 81 on Toronto that he learned about mathematics. You know, he probably had... Oh, he put mathematics on Michael, you know, when Michael, the last time they played, when Michael came to L.A. with the Wizards, it was... Uh, oh, yeah, he, yeah he, got, he served him up that game, didn't he? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing. The, it's... Because it, it, it was it was interesting, like, throughout the years, there was sort of an ambiguity about their relationship. But like like we said, with like we, like I said, with that, uh, with the memorial, like so much came to light about how much Michael was really fond of him. And, uh, you know, I, you always we always felt that Kobe admired Mike and he, he did so much to pattern himself after him. But it was, you know, I, like I, I've spoken about it before. Like for me, it was almost like an insult. Like back in 97, 98, when he was, you know, when he was trying to speak like Mike in interviews and he was doing his fade, he was doing his fade away just like Mike. And stuff. It was like, for me being a person who, who worshiped Mike as well, it was like an insult that this kid was trying to do all these things and, trying to to actually put himself in the in the rare air of, of Michael Jordan but as I've grown up and and as he grew up seeing him it's like you, you can't help but admire him because he was of our generation and he was the one guy who actually came the closest to to reform to to living up to the legacy of Michael Jordan and that's that alone is a great legacy for Kobe to have, but he right. he, bu and, and he built I, upon and I that. I say this in defense of Kobe. He was a 15 year old kid. Um, Sonny Vaccaro was working for Adidas. He had been fired by Nike, and he was looking for the next Jordan. And he was holding all these camps. You know, all the top kids would come. And Joe Bryant had been in. Uh, in Sonny's game back in the 70s. And Sonny hadn't seen Jelly Bean in forever. And Jelly Bean, you know, these are all special invitation events. And Jelly Bean showed up out of the blue after Kobe's sophomore year. And um, Sonny Vaccaro couldn't find people who wanted to take a contract and turn pro out of high school. Sonny wanted to steal the top player from Nike. He wanted to steal the top player from the NCAA. He viewed the NCAA as, as a bad organization. And so he wanted to find the top kid. And Kobe was not on the radar. 
But Kobe comes in that game, uh, Sonny at the last minute lets Kobe in the game uh, to play with all these top players. And he was stunned at how well Kobe did. And it, it was an eye-opener, but after the game, uh, Kobe came over to Son of, Son of Vaccaro and said, Mr. Vaccaro, I wasn't the best player in the game this year, but I want to thank you for letting me play, and I want to tell you that next year, I'm going to be the best player in this game. And Sonny Vaccaro's jaw dropped, because he was looking for that it factor, that kid who had that mentality. And he realized he had found it. And so he immediately, he got, uh, like, Sonny Charles, uh, the AAU guys. Uh, I have to think about it. I might be getting his first name wrong. But I think uh, he got Sonny Charles, the AAU guy, to begin following everything Kobe did. Sonny Vaccaro said it's the most clandestine thing I've ever done. But he told Kobe's AAU coach, Sonny Vaccaro did, that he planned on making Kobe the next Jordan. Now, you take any 15-year-old kid and you let it be known to them that they're going to be the next Jordan. What do you think they start doing? They start... Actually, one of bitches is Kobe. They shave their hair. They yeah. start to walk. And, and Sonny McCarroll was riding somewhere with Kobe in a limo about six months later. He was astounded at the transformation of, because you tell a kid that's that hungry what he's going to be. And so that wasn't organic, I'll put it that way. I always was looking for the organic Kobe, uh, because there's plenty about him that was organic and real. And, uh, you know, that's the thing about talent players coming along today there's so much that robs them now don't get me wrong this is fantastic stuff that happens a lot of times I've been an AAU coach some of it's very good but a lot of times I get robbed of that chance to be organic just to just to evolve from their own strong intuitive competitive nature but either way, those two guys, <clears throat> whatever happened, they were they were kindred. Def, def. The, uh, I was about to wrap up uh, uh, yep. here, yep. but uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed so much talking to you about these I've two I've enjoyed guys. talking to you, Kyle. These are excellent questions. This is well, obviously, thank you. you work hard at this, and I have a high appreciation for that. Thank you. I, I appreciate you as well, sir. And it's, it's just great getting so much of this history that I've gotten from you. But, as, but as before we wrap up, I, 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 I love that you just brought up this point that you just brought up about the authentic Kobe. And I, in, in, in that respect, do you think that as we got to the tail end of his life, uh, as he became the Mamba and you know, he became that that sort of old that old player that you know that uh, that old gunslinger on the court, but off the court he was also becoming a a father and and really a father to to Gianna, and so much of his competitive spirit he transferred onto her. And do you think that was more of the authentic Kobe that we saw? you know, leading up to his final days and, and his, really his final moments on earth. He, he was, it was spent service and in the way servicing the game of basketball and servicing his daughter. I, I have to say, yes. Um, you know, I had a, I have a daughter who she's married and uh, has lived in Boston. She's back here in Virginia, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, where I live with coronavirus. She got a new baby. She and her husband came back here to avoid 
trouble. But uh, she played years of AAU, was intensely competitive, and you know I I coached her on a team that went to AAU Division One Nationals and brought on the trophy. We had a lot of really good players on that team, and AAU and I, you know, we just had the taste of Division One. This was back in the this was back in 2000 before AAU just hit that warp speed with those elite jet set teams they got now. And, uh, but AAU basketball is an addiction. You know, you got the next man, the next tip off. A great player like Toby is a locomotive. For them to play like they play, it's why I won't rank them. I think that's disrespectful for a writer like me to run around trying to rank great basketball players. They are forces of nature. And everything they've done speaks for who they are and what they are. And it's really unfair for somebody like me to say, oh, he's better than this guy. Well, this guy, that's, I just don't go there. Uh, they, uh, and so... They, they're all organic. Kobe fell into that addiction I was in. We would drive to get to games ridiculously. And the bond that a father-daughter has, coaching like that in sport, or, you know, with the parent watching everything that goes on, it happens all over America. There are people who find that is, uh, and it can be father-son, don't get me wrong. Joe, sir, Joe Bryant certainly enjoyed all of Kobe's uh, success. But it does become addictive. you got all those games. It's a very competitive environment. And sometimes you're hustling to get to another tip-off. And uh, But it is uh, after years of having to pay that price to be who he was, in pro basketball, uh, it's heartbreaking that Kobe um, got to that moment with his daughter, and they were really, you know, taking their own particular journey into it, and to have that happen, it's just immensely sad to me. Yeah, it, it, I think so much of the emotion that that got people wrapped up. In, in that uh, incident and that tragedy stems from that place, and the and the you know and, the promise that was yes. that was laid in both but, of the lives. Kobe uh, was a remarkable man, uh, and he was really just coming into the next phase of what made him remarkable. Sure. Obviously, when I met him, he already spoke all those languages. As a child, he loved writing. His grandfather used to tell him, Kobe, don't be a basketball player. Don't be a sweaty basketball player. You can write. Be a writer. And, of course, Kobe loved writing. He had a $400,000, uh, uh, you know, hip-hop uh, recording contract, 17 years old. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, and he had to put that away because he had business to deal with. But Kobe, uh, he had... He had big, big dreams, big potential. We don't know. It was, you know, 41, 42, 43. That's really just scratching uh, the surface of the surface of adulthood success. I, I would have been, and I know how motivated he was. Um, the writing and publishing and media business can be frustrating too. But I actually won an offer. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I, um, it's just sad that we don't get to see that guy. I think we would have felt free to ignore him or to take him for granted. And uh, I, I, I guess there's something good in this that we learn maybe not to do that with people. I don't know. It's a weird year trying to sort out what the lessons are. 
right? It, and and we got so much more to go, but I think with with people like oh, you, man. with people like you around, you know, we got a lot of uh, case studies and a lot of information that we wouldn't get otherwise. So I appreciate uh, all the writing and the great work that you've done all your career rolling and and thanks for you know spending an hour talking with me about these guys I, Kyle I was happy to thank you for those kind words again warmest thoughts for the good folks in Chicago you be careful I will you as well and, and best wishes to you and your family you too Kyle thank you man Roland Lazenby great author educator basketball uh, mind just all type of great stuff associated with this man. Look him, look, look him up. All his books, you know, are, are out there. Mike, uh, I mentioned them earlier. Michael Jordan, The Life, uh, Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant, Blood on the Horns, Long Strange Ride of Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls. He got uh, Phil Jackson book, Mind Games. Uh, this like you you just just google them they're all out there and they're all there to be read if you love basketball uh this is one this is the work uh definitely a set of work that you want to study uh if you want to know more about the game uh so that's Roland Lazenby uh check them out and uh yeah look out for the the book on magic how uh how far along are you with that Oh, I'm deep into, you know, I do such a cultural background. I'm uh, Magic Fathers from Mississippi. What a, what a situation that place was. Mothers from North Carolina. You know, I've, I've gotten back to great-great-grandfather on the mother's side, deep into the 1830s in North Carolina. And, uh, getting close. Um, these are powerful family stories. I'll just say that, that Magic's a great American. The people I write about are, uh, these are black power stories of how I look at them. And they don't just happen. They are the product of generations. Earlier people in those generations got no recognition for the lives they lived in a, in a world that we, we can't imagine today. The, how, how they were treated or what they faced. But they, uh, those stories are central to what is the basis for the lives of these, these great basketball players and competitors. So I, when I did the book on Jerry West, you know, his people were, uh, Coal miners, hillbillies, my daddy, a two-handed set shooter from the hills of southern West Virginia, so uh, hillbilly hoopers. <laughs> and so I tried to... to be a white man and, and to uh, have that appreciation and that that point of view I definitely appreciate that you uh, you know that you that you state that and, and I think it, again for my audience for much of my audience I think it'll enhance their view of your work uh, you know, because like you said these are these are stories of of uh, you know of power of black power built up and uh, you know of, of redemption and success from past 
from a, no a, a violent and uh, tragic in many ways past, but there was always all the rape and murder and robbery you can add up. And I'm not overstating things. Up, you dig back into history. Yeah, the facts are there. It's, they're unavoidable. You have to deal. I like the fact-based world. That's the fact. Let's deal with it. That's how we get somewhere. Yeah, but you know. We, we survived that and, and part of our history now is also these greats, these great men who have come of age in, in recent years and I think just set great examples, you know. They're not perfect people, certainly you can't say that Mike is perfect or Kobe, but they both set examples that I think people are going to be following for as long as we can, rem- as long as there's a human society now. Right, I agree. And if you find a perfect person, especially one of great achievement, will you call me back? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's just not the case. Definitely, definitely. Uh, You know, it's just... uh, But these stories are important to all of us. And I just have to add the, the stories of their grandparents, their great grandparents, uh, you know, um, those are incredibly important stories. I, I remember thinking, you know, Jordan's parents were uh, were sharecroppers and moonshiners on the coast, uh, and that at face value, we we think moonshine, illegal liquor, that was their cash crop. That was the way white and black sharecroppers had to get by back then. I mean, it was. Uh, you're going through the, the, the depression, but uh, you know, the, the Jordan grandsons, Michael lived with his great grandfather until he was six or seven, and his great grandfather had a little horse drawn cart with uh, a mule and he raised hogs, and the, the boys would, would make fun of all that. But when you look at what they came through to have this thing, I equated them to NBA trophies. The degree of difficulty for the things acquired decades ago, we, you know, when you start getting into the facts, it's a great heritage, that's all I'll say. So. What people came through, it's a great heritage. And the longer we live, I think the more people are going to be able to, of, of all races, I, my hope is they uh, they come to find, they take as much pride in that as they do um, people landing on Normandy in World War II, you know, uh, because it all is what advances the cause of freedom. And, uh, it's all relevant. I got to run, Kyle, but I tell you, I've enjoyed talking. I certainly enjoy talking to you too. Let's do this again sometime. Call me anytime, brother. Great. Great talking to you.